Welcome to the third episode of the Drynet podcast series, Good Food for a Better Normal. In the previous episode, John and Zira, agroecological practitioner and training from Southern Africa, shared his experiences and perspectives about appropriate responses to the COVID lockdown and the use of local resources to provide food and achieve food sovereignty. In this episode, the views of Professor Rachel Weinberg resonate with those of John and provide an analytic perspective on how food systems should be reinvented to serve humanity. This podcast explores complex systems that sustain life on the planet and put food on our tables, challenges some of our preconceptions and shares insights about how we can do better to leave a positive legacy to future generations. We hope that you enjoy listening. If you find the podcast worthwhile, share the link with your colleagues, friends and family. Rachel Weinberg is a scholar-activist with a special interest in biopolitics, alternative agricultural futures, and agroecology. Based in the Department of Environmental and Geographical Science at the University of Cape Town, Professor Weinberg holds a National Research Chair on Bioeconomy and is actively involved with environmental policy debates and civil society movements in Southern Africa. She is also a founding member of the Collaborative Seed and Knowledge Initiative, working towards a future where smallholder farmers in Southern Africa are empowered to secure seed and food sovereignty. So Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Mm, thanks, Mo. Globally, billions of people consume food products produced by industrial-type farming systems. More food is being produced for humans than at any previous time in the history of the planet. What do you see as the shortcomings and vulnerabilities of modern industrial agriculture? Um, there are multiple problems associated with industrial agriculture, which I'm defining as a system that's based on the intensive use of inputs such as pesticides, herbicides, and synthetic fertilizers, as well as crop monocultures, which are based on a very small number of high-yielding, energy-rich, but very micronutrient-poor staple crops and industrial scale feedlots that now dominate many of our landscapes across the world. So that's really how I'm defining uh, the industrial agricultural landscape. And it would take some time to really review the problems in any depth, but in summary, they concern the severe degradation of our lands, soils, water and ecosystems, biodiversity loss and habitat loss at an unprecedented scale, and quite ironically, actually, persistent and increasing hunger and micronutrient deficiencies alongside the rapid rise of obesity and diet-related diseases such as diabetes, which are caused through increased consumption of these so-called empty calories. So maybe I can give you a few statistics to, to back up some of these statements. Um, at the moment, we're looking at a production system that co contributes about 23% of total uh, human-made greenhouse gas emissions due to land clearing, crop production, and fertilizers, with animal-based food contributing about 75% um, of that figure. Uh, we have a scenario where about a third of our soils are believed to be degraded 
due to erosion, nutrient depletion, acidification, salinization, chemical pollution. And we know that uh, around 23% of the Earth's land areas have seen a reduction in productivity due to land degradation. We know also that pollinators have been dramatically affected by habitat destruction and the very high use of agrochemicals. And um, we know too that the impacts go way beyond the land. For example, um, IPBES, which is an intergovernmental panel on, on biodiversity and ecosystem services, which is really, it's the biodiversity equivalent to the IPCC on uh, climate change, which I think uh, many people are familiar with. Um, the recent IPBES assessment on biodiversity described how fertilizers that enter coastal ecosystems have produced more than 400 ocean dead zones, which total for more than a combined area that's greater than the whole of the United Kingdom, which is quite horrific. Um, so those are sort of, I, I guess, some of the, the ecological concerns. But there are also political concerns, and um, many of these are because of the shift that we've seen from agriculture as a food production system to uh, uh, agribusiness, uh, which is really putting profit uh, before food and before health in many cases, with processes, uh, retailers, particularly large supermarkets, becoming dominant forces, and farmers within these systems typically lose control over their farms, their modes of production, their livelihoods, uh, in terms of a range of things, the seeds they plant, which often are subject to intellectual property rights, they need to be repurchased year to year. And also with regard to the land that's used, as farmers become contractually bound to serve these large supermarkets and uh, produce uh, sort of what, what, they, what they demand. Um, in Africa, which is often seen as the last frontier of so-called unproductive land, this is especially stark. And we saw in 2007-2008 uh, the global food and financial crises triggering a rush for farmland. And since then, African governments have signed hundreds of deals with foreign companies for agribusiness projects, which cover over 10 million hectares of land across the continent. And the impacts on local communities here have been brutal. They've lost their lands, forests, water, and they've suffered violent repression, food insecurity, and, uh, and a variety of other um, social ills. Just this morning, I read a report by the NGO Grain of how um, in Uganda, thousands of families are being violently evicted from their farms to make way for foreign-owned sugar plantations. So we're seeing a shift there not only um, around away from food towards commodities like sugar which really do produce uh, quite evil calories but also this this brutal violation of human rights so these are some of the reasons among many others that uh, uh, we, we, we see a problem with industrial agriculture Rachel, one of the other inputs industrial agriculture is of course human beings people as labor and uh, I guess a lot of the people who are being displaced from, from agricultural lands in the developing world are also being uh, faced with rather stark economic um, alternatives, in one of those being to go and work as labor in industrial agricultural setups. I wonder if you'd care to comment about 
that particular aspect of, of industrial agriculture. Yeah, exactly. I think you've you've uh, sort of put your finger on it, Noel, and it's it's linked to what I was describing earlier. So it's a move away from farmers having control control over their farms towards being contracted and becoming simply cogs in the machine, laborers, uh, you know, sometimes managing these farms, often just doing the drudge work and, and doing the spraying with, with uh, uh, health, the health impacts of, uh, of these agrochemicals. And it is the supply of cheap labor, of course, that makes agribusiness possible and profitable. So that is very much at the core of the problem. I wonder if I could ask you to reflect a bit on why you think food sovereignty matters when the world, in fact, is producing more food than people need. I think it's important from the get-go to explain how food sovereignty differs from food security, um, because I think it's not often well understood. And the definition of food security that is embraced by the, the FAO is that it, it exists when all people at all times have physical and economic access to sufficient safe and nutritious food to meet their dietary needs and food preferences in order to lead a healthy and active life. So on paper, that looks well and good, and one, one could ask why there's a problem with that definition. But two, food sovereignty is quite different from food security in both approach and politics. Um, Food security doesn't say anything at all about the production systems. It implies a business-as-usual approach, um, whereas food sovereignty is emphasizing ecologically appropriate production, distribution, and consumption. Um, it's very well articulated by the Nayeleni Declaration, which was adopted in 2007 by a very wide range of um, farmer-based fisher, fisher folks, and civil society organizations where it's described that food sovereignty is it's is inherently political it's it's about social and economic justice and it's about resistance it's about resistance to imperialism to patriarchy to neoliberalism to neocolonialism and to the domination of food systems by corporations that place profits before people health and the environment it's also about resistance to, to technologies like GMOs that remove control of production away from people and to the privatization and the commodification of food, basic as well as basic and public services, to knowledge, to land, to water, to sea, livestock, and so on. So food sovereignty rejects the notion that food's just another commodity um, or, or a component for agribusiness. And it, it has a, a number of, of principles which are very well articulated in the declaration, which describe how um, food sovereignty values those who cultivate or grow or harvest or process food, um, whether they're small-scale farmers or fisher folk or forest dwellers or indigenous peoples or migrants. Um, it places emphasis on localizing food systems as a way to tackle hunger and poverty and guarantee um, sustainable food security. It aims to place control over territory, land and grazing and water and seeds um, on local or, or within local food pro pro providers and uh, sort of articulating the importance of respecting their rights. Um, and it builds on the skills and the local knowledge 
of food providers and their organizations. Um, and lastly, it's, it focuses on the contributions of nature, as I mentioned earlier, in diverse uh, low external input agroecological production and harvesting methods. Um, and these are especially critical in the face of climate change. So for all these reasons, food sovereignty is important and um, it matters, certainly it matters when one, when one places it in this wider social and political and ecological context. It certainly sounds like it's an important element of a fulfilled life for human beings, not just within the context of the food system, but in terms of the whole person. Exactly. Rachel, I wonder if you could share with us some insights in, about the ways in which sustaining biodiversity might contribute to sustaining food security. Um, food security is not possible without biodiversity. Biodiversity creates living and productive soils, um, breathable air, clean water. It also enables pollination, pest control. It provides habitats for, for species that are vital to livelihoods and food production. And it also makes production systems and livelihoods much more resilient to shocks and stresses, including those caused by climate change. So, I mean, biodiversity is often used directly as well to contribute to food security, um, in addition to these sort of wider ecosystem benefits. And I wanted to reflect a bit on a headline that's recently grabbed South Africa's attention during the COVID pandemic, where alarm was expressed about the fact that children were being forced to eat wild foods in the Eastern Cape due to the hunger and economic crisis brought upon by COVID. And what it didn't say was how widespread and important wild plant foraging actually is. We know that globally about 1 billion people benefit from contributions of wild food to their food security and dietary diversity. And this also reduces vulnerability to um, non-communicable diseases and overall health. So there was a recent study done by um, Hezekiah Garakai and Charlie Shackleton lately which showed that about 68% uh, of respondents in two towns in South Africa reported foraging wild plants and, and that these played a really important role in diversifying diets and providing micronutrients. So, you know, one expects this in, in rural areas, but to hear about this high dependency in two um, towns in, in South Africa was, was quite astonishing actually. So it's, it's therefore of concern that despite these facts, we continue to neglect biodiversity in economic and well-being strategies. It's really something we need to, to pay attention to a lot more. Thanks, Rachel. That's fascinating. Rachel, I wonder if you could make a little comparison for us. I think our listeners will be interested to know how agroecology compares to other agricultural approaches that also seek to retain or increase soil carbon. For example, conservation agriculture, or what's called climate smart agriculture. Could you shed some light on that for us? Sure, and I, maybe I need to start by saying a little bit about what agroecology is before we can say what it's not. And it's certainly not something new. It's been practiced by family farmers and indigenous peoples for, for many, many years. And it's been guided by an innate and very intricate knowledge of nature and a very deep connection to the land and sea, which is often developed um, through, has developed biologically and genetically diverse systems that are robust and resilient. Initially, 
uh, agroecology was founded on a set of, of quite technical and biological principles, which are still very much part and parcel of our understanding today. With Michael Atieri, who was understood as one of the fathers of agroecology, describing these, these as follows. So one of them is around um, in, enhancing the recycling of biomass to optimize decomposition and nutrient cycling. The second being to strengthen the immune system of agricultural systems through enhancing biodiversity. A third being to provide favorable soil conditions for plant growth. Fourth, to minimize losses of energy, water, nutrients, and genetic resources through, through re regeneration of soil, water, and agrobiodiversity. Fifth, to diversify species and genetic resources at the, both the field and the landscape level. So it's going beyond the farm level. And then lastly, enhancing biological interactions among different components of agricultural biodiversity. Those principles are, are very much at the heart of agroecology. And I think when we explore other systems um, which are purporting to fit within an agroecological model, we need to ask whether they are adhering to those principles. And I think very often the answer is no. Um, what's important, however, is that agroecology over the years has expanded to also include a very strong focus on the political dimensions of food production. Um, which I've explained earlier. So, so there are three parts to agroecology, one which is focused on the science, which studies and attempts to explain the functioning of agroecosystems, um, a set of practices that um, are looking at farming in a more sustainable way. And then as the social movement, political movement, that seeks to make farming more ecologically sustainable and more socially just. So importantly, it's not organic agriculture. When you think of organic agriculture, it, it does reduce chemical inputs, but it's still based on monocultures that are highly dependent on external inputs and buys into sort of an industrial production model. It's, it's definitely not based on all of those principles which are articulated. And it's also not conservation agriculture, which is based on reduced tillage and the retention of, of marsh on the soil surface, often through the use of herbicides, which are definitely not seen as part of agroecology. A recent study published by uh, Mark Corbeils and colleagues in Nature Food got quite a lot of uh, attention lately, where it was, it was uh, demonstrated that conservation agriculture, despite being advocated by many international agencies and governments, is not seen as a, as a technology for African smallholder farmers to overcome low crop productivity and food insecurity. So I think one has to be quite cautious when you know, using the agroecological language to describe different ways of approaching um, agriculture, which are not necessarily taking on board some of those principles which we've been describing. Rachel, we're, we're facing another somewhat drought-stricken winter in, in the western part of South Africa. At the same time, Europe is enduring quite a hot summer. Hurricanes are wreaking havoc across the Atlantic, uh, in the Caribbean, in the US. Um, it seems to me from what you've been telling us that agroecology has an important role to play on a planet with a changing climate where the shocks are going to become ever greater and resilience of, of production systems is going to become ever more important. 
What do you see as the main driving force taking us forward towards a more agroecological production base for keeping the, the people of the planet healthy and well-fed? I think there are many different pieces to, to answering that question. You know, the one is really trying to understand what is preventing agroecology from becoming a much greater force. Um, and part of that is due to the fact that there are policies in place that are very promotional of the current industrial agricultural model. And there are interests at stake that um, are very strongly supported by that model. So um, there, are, there, there are enormous barriers in terms of these entrenched interests that would be threatened by an alternative agricultural system. Having said that, uh, you know, agroecology maybe less so in the South African context because of uh, the large industrialized agricultural sector in the country, but certainly in the rest of the continent, agroecology is very much uh, in practice and is is a vital component of of livelihoods for millions of farmers. So it's not to say that we need something new. We need to support what is there and give it give it proper support, and recognise it as as an important contributor to to food production and to food security and people's livelihoods. That would be a really good start. Removing policies that block that and improving recognition through not only through policy recognition but um, through proper financial incentives. To, to stimulate agroecology and recognize its importance. Rachel, thanks so much for these very insightful thoughts that you've shared with us. Uh, it's greatly appreciated, and uh, I look forward to continuing the conversation in future. Thank you, Noel. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DryNet podcast series, Good Food for a Better Normal. We hope that you've found the inspiration to reinvent the ways in which we care for the land and produce, distribute and consume food. In the next episode, Professor Annette Cowie provides insights about how we can achieve the ambitious global goal.